The reading will be taken from Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Great. Well, uh, it was brilliant to be led in prayer so uh, eloquently by Johnny earlier. I'm not going to pray again because actually a lot of this sermon is going to be unpacking uh, what Johnny prayed us through. So hopefully as we go through the next 15, 20 minutes or so, uh, a lot of what Johnny prayed so brilliantly will become clear. And I hope you've been enjoying those chances that we've had at the six o'clock service just to chat to the people around us before the reading. I hope that's been uh, a way of helping you to get to know each other, to get to know each other's names Uh, Thank you very much for kind of bearing with me over these kind of initial few weeks and months of me getting to know people's names here. Uh, Some people have asked me very kindly if there's anything that I miss from uh, the days when I was teaching. And I've got to say, one of the things is actually people staying in the same places week by week and lesson by lesson. I'm finding it a whole load more confusing in churches where everybody seems to move around. But it's a great joy to see everybody. Feel free to do that, please, as we come in six o'clock by six o'clock to make sure that we get round each other and we can get to know each other. Uh, One of the other things that... uh, I guess I remember slightly uh, less fondly from teaching and probably miss uh, even less was the annual address from the head teacher year by year as we had the results analysis with the whole school body, the head addressing us. It was that kind of salutary moment of pause and reflection as we went through the results. Occasionally, there were the kind of the moments of of commendation and celebration, and we all kind of patted ourselves on the back. Those were relatively few and far between. More likely, it was that uh, there was some kind of remedy proposed to actually kind of deal with the dodgy results that we may have just had, in the hope that actually that remedy would yield some encouraging uh, results. And so as we come to the letter Uh, to the church in Sardis as we continue our journey with kind of God's postman as he goes around the seven churches in Revelation. Uh, We come to a similar situation. Jesus, the head, addresses the church, his 
body on earth. He finds commendation uh, in some. He diagnoses. He gives a, a suggested remedy for that diagnosis and the results of following or not following that remedy. And so that's the agenda for this evening. This is what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at a diagnosis, a remedy, and the possible results of that. That's the route map for the talk. Uh, As I normally do, I'll preach sequentially through the letter. So if you have that open in front of you, that would be a great help, help you to refer back. But the main uh, verses will come up on the screen here, and we'll apply each bit as we go through. Uh, Before we get to the diagnosis, we really need to meet the patient, I guess, and that is the church in Sardis. So, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right, and then the letter uh, goes on. I I, I was out on Friday on my day off, and I I went for a little bit of a wander around uh, the country. I ended up uh, in a particular town, I won't tell you particularly where, uh, but I wandered into the church during the day, Uh, And as I looked at how the church was configured, the kind of layout of chairs and the kind of the various activities that were signposted on the notice board, uh, and the various, uh, the the, the way the kind of the space was set up, how tidy it was, and all of those types of things, kind of what they had in their children's corner, I was reminded of the fact that churches reflect the community that they're part of with all that community's strengths, with all that community's weaknesses, sadly, often, churches reflect their community. And so it was the case here in Sardis. Sardis, modern-day Sart in Turkey, uh, was the ancient capital of the kingdom of Lydia, presided over, at least at one point in its history, by King Croesus, a fabulously wealthy place. Uh, This is... Uh, the first known example, as far as I'm aware, of a gold-minted coin. Such was the wealth of Sardis that this was the kind of thing that it churned out and dealt in. And apparently that is a portrait uh, of King Croesus. It's not exactly a passport photo, but apparently that is what the chap looked like, at least in metal. Uh, And the the wealth of Sardis really ought to have been guaranteed by its strategic location. It was enormously powerful because of that enormous one-and-a-half-thousand-foot-high mountain behind it. You had the town in the valley, and then one-and-a-half-thousand feet above that, you had a citadel on which uh, the city's security rested. It was thought to be virtually impregnable. Well, at the point of revelation, the glory days of Sardis are well and truly over. Uh, buildings, uh, even those that are looking kind of very ruined now, were, were already falling into ruin. The shutters on many of them were up. You could almost smell the decay in the air as buildings came tumbling down, or at least their use was transferred for a different purpose. And part of the reason was that impregnable Sardis had proved not to be quite so impregnable. Uh, Amazingly, really, Sardis had been invaded twice in its history. And there'd been no great commotion. Uh, All that had happened is the the, uh, marauding army had simply turned up at the gates and walked in. 
Uh, and the reason they've been able to do that is because the guards who guarded Sardis were so arrogantly overconfident about the, the city's impregnability that they'd actually fallen asleep on the gates. Uh, and that happened not just once, but twice. There had been afoot a savvy, quietly effective, but deadly takeover as the guards lay asleep. Now, with all of that history in mind, we're now hopefully in a better place to understand the head's diagnosis of the body's condition. And unfortunately, as Johnny alluded to earlier, it's not exactly a terribly happy story. The diagnosis is there in the second half of verse 1. There it is on the screen if you wanted to follow it. I know your deeds, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. The letter to the church in Sardis is actually the only one of the seven letters that starts without any form of commendation at all. This was one of those heads uh, chats that I least enjoyed hearing. It pitches straight in with a difficult diagnosis. It's a pretty grave diagnosis. In fact, that's absolutely where the diagnosis is leading. You see, the church in Sardis is in terminal decline, unaware of the savvy, quiet, deadly advance that's afoot. The church is asleep. Verse 2, rather than growing and advancing like any living body might be expected to do, the church's actions are, in fact, incomplete. It's in reverse. It is slowly falling apart, about to die. And that's not a surprise. It's not a surprise because of the beginning of the letter. These letters are miniature masterpieces. They're brilliant uh, pieces of writing, such that they actually contain all the details that we need to know. And I'm not sure whether you saw it there at the beginning of verse 1. Jesus the head introduces himself in a highly significant way. He introduces himself as the one who holds the seven spirits of God. God. You might translate that the sevenfold spirit of God. You see, it's the spirit who brings life. It's the spirit who brings life to creation. It's the spirit who brings life to individuals. And it's the spirit who brings life to the churches those individuals make up. If Christ is the head and the church is the body, the spirit is the breath that brings life and growth and advance. And so I think it's probably correct to think that sleepy Sardis is in danger of dying because, as Paul would put it, it's not going on being filled with the Spirit of God. As we apply that to us, we, we, we need to just pause and be slightly careful. You see, we're not Sardis. With a church in England, in here, with a church of England, with St. Andrews, we're, we're you and me, we're not Sardis. But equally, I don't think we should be too quick to abdicate responsibility. There might be overlaps, there might be things for us to learn and areas of challenge and perhaps similarity. And so any application inevitably is going to need God's Spirit to 
in a living way apply that to us. And so as we go through uh, the letter, I pray that actually we would be praying that God's Spirit would help us to apply this message to ourselves. You see, I'm struck as I look around the church in Europe and the church in England by the number of church buildings which are simply shuttered up. I know the church is the people, it's, it, it's not the buildings, but the number of places that are applying for transfer of use, the number of places, I, I get tons of flyers through my door in summertime for kind of property agents looking to kind of, for me to sell a property that I don't own, but I, I haven't told them that, um, uh, but, but seeing on those property flyers churches now uh, changing use and being sold as private dwellings. I'm, I'm challenged by a church in Europe which is shrinking and contracting both numerically and in maturity rather than growing. I'm struck by the fact that Europe is now in an area of reverse mission. Countries that we sent people to to share the gospel with are now heeding God's call to come back to us and share the gospel with us that we might not fall asleep and die. I'm struck by a church which, rather than being alive sometimes with gospel vitality, is in many areas seeming to be asleep, not really alert to ever-encroaching rival agendas and rival kings who would come in and take control. I'm struck by the number of Christians, when I look around my friendship circle even, who I don't see really growing. I look around the church and I wonder in 10, 15 or 20 years time, who will remain? Helpfully, the letter to Sardis has a diagnosis which uh, is followed by a remedy a series of commands across verses 2 and 3. You might like to just pick them out uh, with me. Wake up at the beginning of verse 2. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you have received and heard. Obey or hold it fast and repent. You see, for the followers of the risen Lord Jesus, this terminal decline is not irreversible. But it comes with an if if the church wakes up, repents, turns around, holds fast that gospel that it's received, and so is strengthened. A list of commands always seems like quite a lot to do. Wake up, strengthen, remember, obey, repent. It just seems like a very long to-do list, almost a bit overwhelming, a kind of too much list rather than a to-do list. And so we need to interpret this diagnosis in the light of what we've just said, uh, this remedy, uh, in terms uh, of what we've just said of the diagnosis. You see, any healthy body is inevitably going to be a successful partnership between a controlling head, an obedient body, and life-giving breath. And so the declining church is called to act, certainly, but for this activity to be effective as a remedy, the activity needs to be done not in our strength, but in the power of the Spirit, following the direction of the head. You see, activity that is uh, 
spirit-less is going to be life-less. Activity which is headless is going to be directionless. And so for this activity to have direction and to have life, it's going to have to be inhabited by the Spirit and pointing and obedient to Jesus. Uh, Sadly, there are many churches, when we look around Europe and we look around the UK in particular today, uh, people who often we know and we love, who are very busy doing things, but which evidence suggests may not necessarily be there as communities of faith in 50 years' time. In fact, the activity, being perfectly blunt, might more uh, be akin to sleepwalking rather than actual activity. There's activity going on, as there is in sleepwalking, certainly, but without a dependence on the indwelling breath of God's Spirit enlivening the church to remember the good news of Jesus, the patient, the church, is actually fast asleep, wandering rather aimlessly and somewhat dangerously around. The church needs to wake up. And so, after that rather in-your-face diagnosis and definitely an in-your-face remedy, we get to the cheerful bit, if you like, at the end of the letter. Uh, The hope, you see, because for the patient who hears the diagnosis and acts on the remedy, the results are fabulously exciting. Just have a look at verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Sardis was quite well known for making elaborate garments. They walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels." Those about to be executed in Sardis often had their name removed from the city ledger, blotted out from the city book as a final act of separation before they were executed. But what we read here is for those who walk with Jesus, nourished by the breath of his spirit, following his lead and walking in step with him, for those who remain constant to the good news, to the good news that the stains of sin that are on the robes that we wear and the lives that we live can be cleansed by his death, for those who remind themselves that even in the midst of the spiritual death and decay around us, that we have a risen Lord who is victorious over death, for those people their name will never be blotted from the book of the city of life. They might be few in number. Definitely the letter indicates that in Sardis they were. And if we're going to look at the statistics that the church seems to love to pump out, we shouldn't necessarily expect to see the church in England grow too much in the decades to come. Obviously, God might have totally different plans, and we pray that that might be the case. But if we look at the stats and the trends currently, although we will see uh, the church shrink, we will see individual churches grow, and we will see individuals within them grow. 
And those churches are going to be the ones that remember and live according to the good news of Jesus the head in the power of the Spirit. That patient, having heard the diagnosis and having acted upon it, is not going to be overrun and taken by surprise in her sleep. That patient's going to be the one who stands firm and grows and advances. Let me finish by telling you about uh, Christchurch Meadow, uh, a scene I guess many of us uh, will know and be familiar with. Every morning since the beginning of the academic term this year, students have been gathering on Christchurch Meadow at 6am to pray for the regeneration in the name of Jesus of the university, their friends and colleges. Uh, At first, it was just a group uh, who were relatively small in number, three meeting morning by uh, morning. Uh, And as term's gone on, various people have gone along. Their Christian friends have wanted to go along and join them uh, in prayer. Uh, Once or twice, some uh, their non-Christian mates have gone along as well, wanting to see what it looks like when non-Christians pray for God to break in. Uh, And they've been chatting to their friends about it. I was talking to one of that original group of three uh, during the week. We met up, uh, Clem's a a student on our our youth camp over the summer, and I was talking to him, and we had a really exciting time in the the pub. Uh, It was a very good pint. Uh, But uh, alongside the pint, we had a great time talking about revival movements over the course of history and how they'd been used, how often... It's a very small group of committed, faithful people praying who are people who are the seeds of change within their society. Often, it happens to be student movements that have impacted not just the university, but impacted the world around them as well. We had a great time talking about that. And so as you're praying this week, let's be praying uh, for those students. Let's also be praying for ourselves as well here at St. Andrews that we, in the midst of this actually quite difficult spiritual picture, would be oases of spiritual given life, Uh, that we might hold fast to Jesus, that we might be strengthened in him, and that we might be found worthy of the calling that we've received. Shall we pray now just as we finish? Lord God, we thank you that you live in those who own the name of Jesus by your Spirit. Thank you that you bring life to these new creations in him. And thank you that in Jesus you have done everything that is needed to remove the barriers between us and the Father. And so we pray, Lord, now as a church that you, Jesus, may be our head in everything that we think, say, and do as individuals and as a community, and that, Spirit of God, you might bring life so that we both have energy and vitality, and we also have the direction of him who leads us to the Father. It's in his name we pray. Amen.